Welcome to Scholastic Reads, our podcast about books, authors, and the joy and power of reading. I'm your host, Suzanne McCabe, Editor-at-Large at Scholastic. Thank you for joining us. I didn't feel like a Chinese national, but standing in line, I looked around, and for the first time in forever, everybody looked like me. I fit right in. At the counter, the immigration officer took our passports and examined them. In Chinese, he asked me how old I was. Twelve, I said in Mandarin. He nodded. Are you guys coming back for good or for vacation? For vacation, I blurted. I glanced over at my parents just to make sure. They nodded. My mom chatted with the immigration officer while we waited. We've been out of the country for years, she said, in America. How is it there, he asked. It's, mom searched for the right word, different than we expected, but we love it. That was award-winning author Kelly Yang reading from her new middle grade novel, Room to Dream. Kelly is the New York Times bestselling author of Front Desk, a wildly popular series about Mia Tang, a Chinese-American girl who is growing up in California in the 1990s. Kelly has won numerous accolades for her work, including the 2019 Asian Pacific American Award for Children's Literature. She'll tell us about Mia's latest adventures and about the struggles that she and her own parents faced immigrating to the U.S. when she was a child. Later, I'll talk with educator Don Vu about his new book, Life, Literacy, and the Pursuit of Happiness. Having spent more than two decades in the classroom, Dr. Vu has incredible insights into helping immigrant and refugee children thrive as readers, writers, and learners. He'll tell us, too, about his own family's desperate escape from Vietnam in 1975, his experiences as a refugee growing up in California helped him develop empathy for families much like his, who arrive in America with little more than a dream. First, here is Kelly Yang. Hi, Kelly. Welcome back to the program. Thanks so much for having me. When you were a guest on the podcast in 2018, you were a debut novelist. Now you're a New York Times best-selling, award-winning author. Yeah, I'm glad to be back in it. And I remember coming in, I remember how nervous I was the first time I came in. I think it was probably pub day for Front Desk, the day it was first published. And I was so emotional and it was so great talking to you and sharing my story. Well, I'll never forget that day, and I'm continually happy for you because these books are extraordinary. For our listeners who may not know Front Desk, they're missing out, but this is your debut novel. Now, it places the indomitable Mia Tang, 10 years old, front and center. Could you tell us about the genesis of the story and how you discovered Mia's voice during the writing process? I had been trying to write the story of my childhood for a really long time. I worked in three different motels growing up with my parents. 
all over Southern California and they would clean the rooms and I would manage the front desk as like a small child. I think I did it from when I was eight to when I was 12. And this was such a extraordinary childhood that when I became an adult and I wanted to write novels and books, I really thought that there is something really interesting here about taking that seed of what happened to me and making it into a beautiful story. So I tried and tried, and I think I wrote a draft where it was a middle grade novel, but half of the book was told from the point of view of Mia's dad. I now realize in hindsight, knowing more about the industry, that that was probably not such a great idea, but it helped me develop my writing muscle. And I always tell kids this, writing is rewriting. And the more you know your characters, I mean, there's a reason why like the, the entire cast of characters in these books in the Calavista Motel are so interesting. They're so different from each other. It's because I really, I think it really helped that I took the time to spend that quality time getting to know them. You love to write. You love teaching kids how to write. How did writing become your superpower and help you find your own voice? So growing up, we had no money. I mean, it was always a problem. You know, it was something that was front and center in your mind. Just are my parents going to be able to afford this thing that I have to buy for school? Or now the class is going on a field trip and they're asking for 15 bucks and like, oh no. So that was always such a big part of my childhood. Just the fact that we didn't have a lot. What I discovered was sometimes my parents' friends would have problems being struggling first-generation immigrants. We all had a lot of problems. But their problems would often involve an employer mistreating them or somebody took their passport or they couldn't get a refund on something that they should be able to get or that they were over overcharged on their telephone or whatever it was, like small little things. And they would come to my parents. My parents, of course, didn't know a lot of English, couldn't really help them. I would just overhear them commiserate about how hard it was to live in this country, not having this voice. And I would eavesdrop and I would come in and be like, okay, Uncle Uncle Lee or <laughs> Uncle John, how can I help you? And I'm with my little pen and my little notepad. And I would try, I would try. And the first couple of letters, they worked. And that's when I realized that this was a superpower. This was something I could do for free. I didn't need any money for this and I could change lives. And a lot of my parents' friends got their passports back or they would get the $5 they were overcharged back, you know, which was a, like a life and death situation for a lot of immigrants. And you were six years old when your parents brought you here from China, right? Yeah, exactly. And I didn't know a single word of English. So that was something that I also just often wondered was, you know, is being an author in the realm of possibility for me as someone who was not a native speaker and had acquired this language later. And now, you know, the answer is yes. Now, tell us about Three Keys, which is the second book in the series. And I'm curious even how you came up with the title and, and what the title means to you. Yeah, so in Three Keys, it continues the journey of Mia. She's now, this is her second year managing the motel, which she now owns, which is like, spoiler alert, I'm, I'm sorry, but she... It's a big deal. It's a big deal for this family. And not only does she own it, but she and her friends get to run it. And she has two best friends now. She has Lupe, who's always been her best friend from book one, and a new really good friend, a very unlikely friend in Jason, who, if you've read Front Desk, you know, Jason was not always nice to her. 
And that's always been a complicated relationship. But those two, those three kids, they really are the three keys. And Mia discovers, and it's, it's not always easy for her to understand Jason. Sometimes Jason will still say things that really bug her, but she has to keep trying. And so the three keys really represents to me the three keys of friendship and of allyship, which is that you got to listen, you got to care, and you just got to keep trying. I mean, she does that throughout the book. And, and in the second book, Three Keys, there's a lot of stuff at stake. There's a law that threatens everyone and everything in Mia's life. The community is changing. There's a lot of anti-immigration things that are happening, which really mirrors what was happening in California at the time for me growing up, but also kind of what's been happening recently. Yes, you and your parents were living in California in 1994 when Proposition 187, an anti-immigrant law, was on the ballot. At some point, your family moved closer to the Mexican border, I think. Tell us what that time was like for you. We were first living in Anaheim, managing a motel there. And then we moved to Newport Beach, which is a very white area. And I was one of two Chinese kids in the entire school. And then from there, I moved to Chula Vista, which is right at the border in San Diego. And so I very much remember Proposition 187. And even though my parents and I, we had papers, it was still just this very vivid, scary thing that at any point, people who did not have papers, their kids would not be able to go to school anymore. And they would not be able to go to the hospitals anymore for anything, like even if they were dying. And that was so terrifying to all of us as immigrants. It didn't matter if you had papers or didn't have papers. You just knew this was something that was like kind of inhumane and could happen to us. And I had a lot of friends at school. We, we were very worried about it. And we would, that was the first time we actually started talking about it, which was a good thing. that We were finally starting to talk about these issues that we had been keeping to ourselves not wanting to seem too different. But at the same time, the other kids were also speculating about us. Like, oh, look at that girl. Maybe she can't go to school anymore, but maybe that one can't. And it was so, it was so humiliating. It was so horrible to live through that. And you didn't have books like the ones you've now written, which offer kids positive images of themselves. Yeah. I mean, the only time I've seen a, um, growing up, I saw a Asian American girl in a book was Claudia from the Babysitter's Club. And I love Claudia so much. She meant so much to me, but she never had to worry about visa issues. You know, like her life was always, it just seemed like her issues that she had to worry about were so different from mine that it was, that, that was jarring to see that. But I was so happy that at least she looked like me. During the pandemic, of course, we've seen an alarming rise in anti-Asian violence and rhetoric. How has that affected you and even your own children? It's affected us a lot. We recently moved back to the United States right before COVID. I had been living in Hong Kong for 15 years when I first met you. I was living in Hong Kong for many years and finally decided that it was time to come back. I had so many books here, wanted to be back. And so this was my second time immigrating to the United States. My third time being an immigrant. The first time was uh, six. Then I had to immigrate to Hong Kong. Then I had to immigrate back. So I am like immigrant pro now. Um, but I, what I did not expect, what was so, so hard was the hostility. And we felt it like literally the, 
minute we landed. We started getting the looks and then my kids would come home from school. And this is when my heart really broke was they'd come home from school and say, mommy, we had to play coronavirus tag. And I just was like, what, what is that? What's coronavirus? Well, someone is the virus and they're it. And my kids were frequently made to be it. And it is it just, it really hits you that, you know, no matter what you do, sometimes it, you just feel like you could be so easily cast aside as, as not belong here or something's wrong with you or that you're unwelcomed. And then of course, this escalated and escalated until this feverish high point when my kids and I were verbally assaulted at the park. This woman came and said that they, she called us a racial slur and told us to go back to where we came from, which, which co- confused my kids because they were like, what do you mean? You know, we live three blocks away. Like, should we go back? <laughs> <three blocks? laughs> um, and I had, to, I had to tell them that that's not what she meant, which was a very difficult conversation as a mom because you always want to protect your kids, but you also want to tell them the truth. Oh, Kelly, I'm so sorry. Uh, you've made a conscious decision, though, to speak out, not mm-hmm. just in your books, also on social media and in articles you've written. Why is that so important? I think it's so important that we speak out against hate. That's what the Front Desk series is all about, is standing up for what's right. There's literally a poster that says, <laughs> stand up for what's right, three keys. Because, because that's really how we get through this. And our voices are so powerful. I learned this as a, as a young kid wielding a pen, trying to help someone get their passport back. It's like your voice, you wouldn't believe how powerful it can be. And it's free. You can do this at any time, anywhere, for anyone. <laughs> and that's the thing is, is standing up for people when you see that they've been hurt, you know, really trying to help them, lending your voice. Because when we collectively put all those voices together, that is something people cannot ignore. And that is powerful. In Front Desk and Three Keys, Mia's father expresses the importance of loyalty in Chinese culture. How does Mia remain true to that quality, even as she is adapting to the ways of America, you know, including eating cereal instead of rice? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's definitely a struggle. And I mean, it was a struggle for me growing up. I felt like there were these two sides of me, Chinese side had certain certain customs at home, like you'd take off your shoes. And I remember once getting into huge, a huge argument with my mom, like, why do we have to take off our shoes? Oh, because, you know, you're bringing the dirt in. It's like, but if we all didn't take off our shoes, then it wouldn't be dirty, you know? <laughs> and um, it, it was just so funny because it was, you could all just already see the two sides were sometimes battling each other. I mean, that's hard as a kid. Which side do you listen to sometimes? And what I want to to showcase in these books is the nuance of that, what that feels like, but they don't have to battle each other. You can be Asian American and that's what I am. And I think that's a really great thing. And, you know, I'm proud to be Asian, as Sandra said. But also just that, you know, we have to embrace the multicultural aspect of our community. And that's what really makes America so beautiful is that we have people from all different cultures. And we have to celebrate that. But in terms of her clinging to some of the foods and stuff, just not feeling ashamed. You don't have to strip away everything about yourself to conform. 
And that, that was a hard lesson for me growing up because there were definitely times when I felt that pressure. And I remember living in Newport Beach, for, for instance, that was an all-white school. It was tremendous pressure to, to conform, to, to, be, to try to fit in, to be white, basically, which was impossible and not something that made me feel good. It takes a lot of courage to say, actually, I'm beautiful the way I am. Young readers can now look forward to another sequel in the Front Desk series. It's called Room to Dream, and it's due out in November. Tell us about Mia's latest adventures, Kelly. Well, so after years of hard work, years of toiling away, they finally get to go on vacation. Mia gets to go on a vacation across the Pacific Ocean to China with her parents and with Hank. And I mean, after the year we've had, I think we can all use a vacation. So, I, <laughs> <laughs> so and you know what, writing this, I think I wrote this, um, a, a huge chunk of it, or at least edited a huge chunk of it during the pandemic. And my editor and I felt such a re- relief, just such joy, just that we could travel with Mia. It was so much fun. And, it, and she gets to see China right as it's on the cusp of changing. Everything is sort of starting to change. It's modernizing, which is good and bad. You know, people are changing, which is good and bad. And she's got she's to deal with all that. But the most amazing part of it, and I'm going to read a scene from the book, is, of course, when she's finally reunited with her cousins. And she's missed them for so long. And it's always a little nerve-wracking because, and I remember this, we came here when I was six years old and I don't think I went back to China to visit until I was maybe like 10. So that was, like, you know, 10 or 11 maybe. So that's a good four or five years that you're wondering, I'm missing all these people, but are they missing me? You know, like, yeah, yeah. what if they forgot all about me? What if they don't even recognize me? Because you've changed so much as a kid. So I'm going to read for you guys a passage from Room to Dream. Four in-flight movies and a little over 13 hours later, we landed at Beijing Capital International Airport. We pressed our faces up against the tiny playing window, trying to get a view of my hometown. It was nighttime, so I couldn't make out the city too clearly, but I recognized the noodle-like roofs of the traditional Beijing hutongs as we touched down. I bounced in my seat in excitement. We're here, Mom declared, the corners of her eyes gleaming in the light. Can you believe it? We're actually home. My dad dabbed his own wet eyes while I repeated the word home in my mind. I hadn't thought of it as coming home. If this was home, what was the Cala Vista? Hank jumped up from his seat with a Polaroid camera. Eggplant, he exclaimed in perfect Mandarin to the surprise and delight of all the passengers around us. Did I get that right? My mom gave him two thumbs up while dad gathered up our carry-on luggage. I patted my backpack. All my presents for my cousins were in there. Hot Wheels, check. Jenga, check. Twister, check. We were greeted by a blast of freezing Beijing winter air as we stepped off the plane, followed by the blow of the airport heaters as we headed into the terminal. Mom was walking so fast towards immigration and customs, we had to run to keep up. At immigration, Hank had to go in the foreigner line while I stood behind my parents in the Chinese national line, even though we had U.S. green cards. I didn't feel like a Chinese national, but standing in line, I looked around and for the first time in forever, everybody looked like me. 
I fit right in. At the counter, the immigration officer took our passports and examined them. In Chinese, he asked me how old I was. Twelve, I said in Mandarin. He nodded. Are you guys coming back for good or for vacation? For vacation, I blurted. I glanced over at my parents just to make sure they nodded. My mom chatted with the immigration officer while we waited. We've been out of the country for years, she said, in America. How is it there, he asked. It's, mom searched for the right word, different than we expected, but we love it. Dad smiled. Well, welcome back, the officer said, handing back our passports. I grinned and ran off to find Hank at the luggage. The airport carts in Beijing were free, so I grabbed one. Now that's what I'm talking about, Dad clapped his hands, grabbing two more. When the last of our luggage were loaded up, my dad turned to me and my mom. You guys ready? Readier than we've ever been, mom beamed. The four of us held hands as we walked into the arrival hall, pushing our luggage. And my eyes scanned the crowd for my cousin Shen, and my heart thumped. Mia, a voice cried. I turned, and there was Shen, nose pressed up against the security glass, exactly where I left him five years ago. He waved wildly and I laughed. He looked exactly the same and totally different. He had grown about a foot taller. He had glasses now and a mop of thick black hair and the biggest, most excited smile on his face. Shen! I screamed running over. As we hugged and hugged, Shen said, told you I'd be right here waiting for you. <laughs> That's wonderful, Kelly. I can't wait to read about Mia's reunion with Shen. And you have to tell our listeners about Hank. He's one of the most endearing characters in the series. So Hank is a weekly, which means it's a customer who lives there, lives at the motel on a very regular basis. That is their home. He's an African-American man. He has been a resident of the Cal Vista for a while. And in the first book, you know, he really struggles with the owner. And there's a lot of stuff that happens in the first book that kind of helps the Tanes understand more what America's like, the real version, not the movie fantasy version that brought them here. <laughs> Part of it, it has to do with becoming friends with Hank and understanding through his eyes what America's like. And then Hank understanding through Mia's eyes as well as he or she as a new immigrant seeing racism for the first time. I mean, they didn't really have racism in China at the time because everybody was Chinese. So she's experiencing a lot of stuff for the first time ever. It's such a powerful bond and an amazing series for young readers. I'm delighted that I got a chance to talk with you again. Thank you so much. This was so much fun. Now, here is Dr. Don Vu, an author, literacy advocate, and award-winning principal. Hi, Don. Welcome to the program. Hi, Suzanne. Thanks for having me. Tell us a little bit about yourself and what drew you to the field of education. Well, I've been in education for 24 years. During my senior year at UC Berkeley, I got a part-time job as a tutor mentor at Oakland High School. And I worked in a classroom with a young teacher named Wayne Yang. I absolutely loved it. I loved explaining things to kids and connecting with them. I wasn't too much older than they were. And he encouraged me to sign up for a program called Teach for America. It was a two-year commitment to teach in an inner city school. And the next fall, I had my own classroom down the street at Bella Vista Elementary School. This was in 1994. Believe it or not, I, I still keep in touch with some of those kids 
for my first class there. In fact, we're having our yearly reunion. Didn't want to, didn't have one last year because of the pandemic. And this weekend, we're having one at a park in Oakland. And it's it's been great keeping in touch with them, going to weddings, seeing them have children, seeing them with their careers, and uh, even even funerals. It's it's been a lovely experience for me uh, in my life. It's something that I'll cherish forever, obviously. That's so remarkable. It just speaks to the strength of the teacher-student bond and how meaningful that is in children's lives. For sure. I mean, I think that's that's the, one of the most important things we can do in education is connecting with them and, and having these types of relationships. So long story short, I eventually became a principal, worked in Eastside San Jose and my, my last school as principal at Barrett Ranch Elementary School in Antelope, California, near Sacramento. And I've always worked in Title I schools, always gravitated towards working with families that reminded me of my own immigrants and refugees who are struggling to make a better life in America for themselves and their children. Families who have traditionally struggled in the margins of society. My family left Vietnam a few days before the fall of Saigon, the end of the war in 1975. We were lucky to come to America and start a new life for ourselves. We came with almost nothing in our pockets. And when I see a struggling parent ask me for help for their kid, I, I see my own mom asking for help. And I'll tell you, there's nothing in the world that will, will keep me from supporting them. And about a year and a half ago, I took a leave from my job as principal. I wanted to spend more time with my daughter and do some creative things like finishing this book. Of course, I had no idea. But a few months after that, I left, the pandemic hit and the world changed. I, I got to really spend a lot of time with my daughter. And, uh, and then I finished the book. I've been told by former colleagues I was lucky to have left before the pandemic. But I still have feelings of guilt. And, and in some ways, I, I wish I was still in schools to help. Tell us about your new book. It's called Life Literacy and the Pursuit of Happiness. I know how powerful reading can be for students, especially the ones who don't have the resources to explore the world in other ways, traveling, summer camps, extracurricular activities. And reading was a way for me to understand the world and to, to understand myself. Dr. Rudine Sims Bishop's idea of the windows and mirrors, as we all know in books was right on for me. Life literacy and the pursuit of happiness is about using the power of reading to empower students, especially our immigrants and refugees, to understand themselves and how they fit in America and the world. When educators talk about working with immigrants and refugees, what's the first thing that comes up? English as a second language, right? And, and I think it should be. These are new Americans who need to eventually become fluent in English, but there's much more. And my book talks about what that means. How do we use books to encourage and build the audacity of equality, right? The idea that you have equal rights in America, no matter where you come from, within our students, right? And how do we support students and families at home when no one can read the books in English? And how do we build and sustain a culture of literacy that celebrates all students? Throughout the book, I also share my own refugee story. So I guess a part of this professional book is a memoir. My hope is that when reading Life Literacy and the Pursuit of Happiness, you get to know at least one more immigrant, his story, and be able to connect more with immigrants and refugees in your school and with their stories. You call for, as you say, a culture of literacy for all. What are some of the ways that schools can do this? In the book, I organize the different ideas into what I call the six, what I call six conditions of creating and sustaining a culture of literacy for all. And it's based on a lot of research that's been done, as well as my experience in schools as a teacher and a principal. So there's some pretty easy things schools can do. 
for example, when purchasing books for libraries in, in the classroom or in your school, make sure that they are diverse. Uh, make sure that there are books in which kids will be able to see themselves in. Make sure that there are books in which kids will be able to learn about others who are different from them. Another way is to encourage literate conversations and informal conversations about books and stories. This helps with fluency comprehension and allows kids at all levels of fluency to engage in a fun way. Uh, you can do this through book clubs, book talks, reading, reading buddies. Those are all good ways to have literate conversations and encourage them amongst kids and, and adults. You can find ways to provide more time for students to read independently. And we all know that the more kids read, the better readers they become. However, not all kids have opportunities to read independently. Of course, you should set aside independent reading time in your classroom or school. For those kids who don't have reading support at home, especially those kids who are in under-resourced communities or families that can't read to them for various reasons like language or, or work issues. Right? You have parents who work at night who rarely see their kids at home. This is especially important to find that time during school or even before school or after school. And I've included a bunch of ideas to create and sustain that culture of literacy for all in schools and classrooms. Many of the ideas came from what we found worked at my own school, but I also showcased many ideas from other educators, principals, teachers, librarians from around the country. You have a great quote in the book from Supreme Court Justice Sonia Sotomayor. She says, until we reach equality in education, we can't reach equality in the larger society. We see so much in the news about hate crimes, crimes against Asian Americans, a struggle for racial justice. How do we achieve this equality in education? What does that look like? I think it's easier if I tell you what it doesn't look like. Equality is not happening when we still have kids who don't have access to online learning after over a year of online learning. And there's no way more affluent communities would accept this, but it's happening to some of our poorest families. Equality isn't happening when we teach history books that don't include the perspectives of all the people who make America great. It's not happening when we don't share books and stories in our schools, which all students can see themselves reflected in. And equality isn't happening when we have kids of color who come to school traumatized from racial injustices that happen outside of school. And you mentioned the skyrocketing anti-Asian crime rates, whether it's that or racism against the black community, whether it's happening to our students or to their parents, they are impacted. Which brings me to back to Justice Sotomayor's quote. Uh, the quote is, until we reach equality in education, we can't reach equality in the larger society. I think it's half true because I think the inverse of that is true. Until we reach equality in the larger society, we can't reach equality in education. I think you can't have one without the other because schools are a, re a reflection of society. And I, and I think right now we have a long way to go. What advice do you have, not just for educators, but for all of us on how to eradicate harmful stereotypes and create a more inclusive society? I've thought about this a lot. And I'm thinking about this today right now. And I, I think about my experience growing up and wanting to fit in. And it's much different from what I want for my, my own students who are not part of the majority. For example, I, I, I want my daughter to feel like she needs to, to not feel like she needs to fit in at school in terms of her culture and background. I, I don't want her to, to have to be embarrassed to bring her Vietnamese sandwich for lunch or 
to be shy about speaking Vietnamese in front of others. And we should celebrate those differences. And in some ways, it's much better than when I was growing up. She's not the only Asian kid in class. There is more recognition of diversity in different cultures in school and society. However, there's, like I mentioned, there's, there's still much more to do. Schools and churches are still some of the, the most segregated places in our society today. And rather than try to fit in, I think we need to focus on celebrating what makes us all unique and, and special. So what I encourage my friends and family to do, which I think what we should all do is to, to open up your social circle, to include people from other ethnicities, backgrounds, people who are different from you. And one of the conditions of building a culture of literacy for all in life literacy and the pursuit of happiness is a condition of commitment. And it's focused on the idea of expanding your circle, your social circle, so that you get to know and be comfortable with people who are different from you. And if we are to do this work in educating all kids, then we need to look within ourselves first. I think someone said this once, you fear what you don't know. And you can only get to know people for who they are when you reach out, connect with them personally. Suzanne, I'm not, I'm not a, an anti-racist expert. And I'm not just learning like everyone else. And was reading this book, Uncomfortable Conversations with a Black Man by Emmanuel Acho. He says the same, to do the same thing. He said, you know, join meetups, take a class, stop and talk to a colleague of color or sit next to a person of color on the subway and strike up a conversation. And this is kind of where we start. You know, you fear what you don't know and you make stereotypes to fill in the gaps. And I think we create a more inclusive society if we just reach out, connect with one another personally. And for educators, it's absolutely important for us to do this when we are serving students and families of color. Uh, we need to go beyond the demographic data that you, that you see every year, the state data that tells you the, the different ethnicities in your school, the different percentages of free and reduced lunch students, uh, and, and really reach out and go beyond those, those data points and reach out and really understand students and families' hopes, their dreams, and their challenges. So you talk in the book so poignantly about your own experience as a new student in the U.S. in the 80s. You didn't want to be seen as different, as you said. You wanted to fit in with the white kids, the middle class kids. How did the experiences of being bullied and of feeling like you had to erase part of yourself, how did they stay with you? I think when, when it happens to you, 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 you build you, you can do two things. You can either build empathy for others or you can build resentment. And I'm not saying either is right, but for me, I, I, I had this strong sense of empathy for others, people who, who don't fit in, people who are, are struggling to connect with the greater society. And for me, when I'm on campus, when I was on campus and I would see kids who were sitting, sitting by themselves at the lunch table or kids who are having a difficult day with, their, with finding friends or anything of, anything of the such. And I would connect with them on, the, on that level and, and kind of remember. And I don't know if those are the scars that I carry with me, but just, just remember what I felt like when I didn't fit in. And being in the position that I am in as an adult in the school, as a teacher, as a principal, there's a lot of power in that and what you do and what you can do to help kids feel connected to someone else. And that's, and that's the calling that, that I sense in the work. Tell us about your own reading journey and why that was so powerful to you and how you try to share that with your students. 
Like I mentioned before, reading was a way for me to connect to the world. Just growing up and not having a lot of the resources to explore the world in different ways. Uh, we did not travel. We did not go on summer vacation. We rarely went out. I, I, I don't remember going out to the movies with my, my family uh, as a kid because we never did. We didn't have the resources, the money to, to do that. My parents were always working. And so reading became a window to the world for me. And I explored the world through books and stories. And even though back then, we didn't have many books that were mirrors that reflected my own background. I remember reading about Albert Einstein as a kid from a book that I found in the library and remember just connecting to, to his curiosity, to his wonder at looking at the stars in the evening sky and thinking that someday, you know, I, I can possibly be an astronomer thinking that someday I can possibly do something where I can discover new things. And, uh, and it made a big impact on me. And, and that's kind of why I do the work that I do in pushing this agenda of building a culture of literacy in schools of encouraging kids to, to read books is because, because I think this is a great equalizer for, for all of us. It's connecting each other to the stories that we have in this world. Do you remember the first time you saw yourself in the pages of a book? When I was a kid, like I said, there weren't too many books. And, you know, if, if you look at it now, things are getting better. But still, mm -hmm. I, I think the last... The Children's Book Cooperative um, did a survey just recently. And I think... Almost 70-something percent of all books still had white characters, main characters, um, animals or objects, as opposed to characters of color. And this is, I think that was in 2019, the last survey they did. So for me, I don't remember, I really don't remember the, when I was a child of reading a book that had an Asian character or an immigrant. But I'll tell you a story. A few years ago, a teacher left a book on my desk. I was a principal. And she said, Don, I think you'll like this, this book. And it was A Different Pond by Bao Fi, uh, illustrated by T. Bui. And it's a Vietnamese immigrant story that highlights a day in a family. And it was recommended to me by Jennifer DeBortley. And I, I read it and I instantly fell in love with it. And I wish I had that to read when I was a kid. And the next day, Jen told me that she read it out loud to her class. And uh, one of her Vietnamese American students said afterwards, I love this book. It's about people from Vietnam like me. And I just remembered that's probably what I would have said if I was a kid in that class and listened to that story. And uh, it was a few decades late, but it, it just made me happy. It just made me happy to, to hear that, to, to see that it connected with him like it would have connected with me as a child. That's, that's a great story. What do you hope educators will take away from life literacy and the pursuit of happiness? I hope that they think about or see a different perspective on working with immigrants and refugees, not only immigrants and refugees, but students who have traditionally fallen by the wayside, who have lived in the margins of, of schools and classrooms and society. And for me, it's, it's understanding the, the power of books and stories, of getting them to use 
books and stories to empower kids to build that audacity of equality, the idea that they have equal rights, just like any other person, no matter where they come from, and to build that within them so that they can grow up and fully expect to live in this country as equal Americans. And books and stories can do that. And books and stories can can elevate the lives of so many so many people uh, and communities. And I think that for us as educators, I think we have the power to change not only our schools, but to change the country and our world. And so I, I hope that this gives people, educators, uh, a, a different perspective on on working with these communities. And it's, it's, it's a way for us to not only to do the work, but also celebrate celebrate the work. It's, it's, it's good work. And it's also fun building a culture of literacy. The last six years at Barrett Ranch Elementary School wasn't just hard work, but it was the most invigorating, most fulfilling six years I've had as, as a, uh, as an educator. Why is that? Because it's life-changing, not only for the kids, but also for yourself. For me, and I think for a lot of my teachers, they were able to reconnect with with stories again, to to find the joy in in the stories that we read as kids and in the new stories that are coming out. And to to see to see that, just like with my student, my Vietnamese American student, to see that the impact on these kids and to find different ways to celebrate um, stories. Another story I was reading Malala and her magic pencil to a group of kids. And uh, I remember reading about turning the page and reading about Malala and looking at one of my students who was was from the Middle East and she had she had a hijab and she was wearing one. And I remember looking at her and she was smiling as I was reading the story. And I looked at her and she smiled some more and she raised her hand and said, you know, I'm wearing what she's wearing. That is really proudly. And I asked her, I said, in front of the kids, I said, how do you feel that she's wearing a hijab like you, a beautiful hijab? And she said, I feel proud with a big smile on her face. In those moments, you realize the power of books. You know, you realize the power that books can have to change the world. And it changed her world right there. And hopefully, you know, that stays with her. And hopefully it empowers her to to do something in this world that is positive and great. Oh, it's so moving. What advice do you have for parents who are immigrants or refugees themselves? Many are struggling. They're struggling with language barriers. How do they help encourage a love of reading in their children, given the limited resources? Well, I, I would say to those parents to speak up and ask for support from schools. If you can't find books or afford books to read with your children at home, ask your school to help. If you can't read the books in English, I would, t- I would say to them to ask for books that are bilingual. You can encourage the love of reading in your children through your home language. Imagine a Mexican-American father reading aloud in Spanish, the children's book Dreamers by Yuyi Morales with his family after dinner. And imagine the impact on the kids, the parents, as they read this immigrant story and dream of a better future for themselves in their new country. And, and I think that the love of reading can happen in any, any language. So I guess my point is that schools are funded 
to help all kids. And there are even special funds, not only for immigrants and refugee students and families. And schools have the duty to address the needs of all kids. And, and so I, I would encourage parents to, to ask for help. That's great advice, Don. In May, we're celebrating Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month, as you know. I wondered if you could share some of your favorite AAPI-themed books for children and teens, even some of the books you love reading to your daughter. Okay, so A Different Pond by Balfi and T. Bowie. I, I mentioned that. That's, that's one of my favorite books. And Write to Me, Letters from a Japanese-American from Japanese American children to the librarian they left behind. It's a book by Cynthia Grady, illustrated by Amiko Hirao. It's a sweet and true story about Japanese American children who stayed connected to their librarian, Clara Breed, during the Japanese American internment of World War II. And they wrote letters back and forth. And Mrs. Breed, the librarian, shows us all how to be an ally and friend during difficult times. And, and we use this book as uh, at Barrett Ranch as a whole school read aloud and book study from kindergarten to, to fifth grade. And it's, it's a great book. I recommend that. For older kids on the subject of the Japanese American internment, they call us enemy, a graphic novel by George Takai about his and his family's imprisonment within the American internment camps. And I recommend this, this book. I like graphic novels, um, but also like Anne Frank's diary, I, th I think you get a different level of historical knowledge when you look at someone's personal perspective, right? When you really delve into their hopes and understand their dreams, you understand the loss and the suffering. It, it, like, I, like I mentioned before, it goes beyond the demographic data, the, the data that you, you see. And, and, I, and I think it, it changes you in a way more so when you connect with them personally with their personal stories and you understand some of the, the personal, the loss that they experience. And I think this book would be great to share for some of our older kids, but those are some of the books that I would recommend. Thank you so much, Don. I think the personal perspective for me is really what sets your book apart, Life Literacy and the Pursuit of Happiness. It's so moving. I mean, it's filled with helpful ideas for educators and ways to get kids reading and loving reading. I really loved talking with you today. Thank you, Suzanne. It's been my pleasure. Thanks so much again to Kelly Yang and Dr. Don Vu for joining me today. And thank you for listening. To learn more about the books we discussed and for other titles that reflect the Asian American experience, check the show notes or go to scholastic.com slash podcast. Special thanks to producer Bridget Benjamin, associate producer Constance Gibbs, sound engineer Daniel Jordan, and music composer Lucas Elliott Everall. I'm Suzanne McCabe. We look forward to sharing more Scholastic Reads next time. <laughs>